We try to play with great pace. We try to play with great pace. Ran a lot of pick and roll, pick and pop uh, type actions. Oh, you'll see us play. Some people look at the guy next to him and say, what the hell was that shot? Hell, I could have been Gronk before Gronk was Gronk. Welcome back to another episode of Bangerangs and Daggers. I'm your host out here in Washington, D.C., Kevin Knight. And we have a special episode for you this week. Joining us, we have Eric Lucian from formerly a Nebraska football player. I know normally we're a Nebraska ball exclusive podcast, but we are crossing over to do some cross sports coverage here, like we're the Five Heart podcast or something. Not that anybody should listen to that podcast. Kidding. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, Eric comes out of Pierce, Nebraska, and played at Nebraska from 2003 to 2005 as a kicker, and now lives in Chicago after getting his PhD in bioengineering from the University of Chicago. For those who may not be familiar, the original member of the Big Ten, in fact, and uh, is a co-founder of LGBT Sports Safe Inclusion Program, and he happens to do other work, including uh, consulting work now. How are you doing in Chicago, Eric? Good. I'm just living that quarantine life during this pandemic, but hanging in there. Certainly. It's, uh, I, I imagine, slightly different weather than uh, out here in D.C., but at least it's nearly spring, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if that's any anything positive to focus on, yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> almost almost summer, I guess. It's uh, I, how is it almost June? I don't. Then again, what is time anymore, really? But <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so let's um let, let's get into it. You uh you happen to obviously be from Nebraska, so I'm sure that that probably explains a little bit the interest in football. But um, talk to us a little bit. How did you uh how did you get into kicking with football? Well, um, I mean, growing up in Pierce, Nebraska, a small farm community, you, as any sort of athlete, you basically are going to be forced to play all sports, um, or they're, you're going to be highly encouraged, I should say, to play all sports because they need you. They just need bodies in some way. Um, but football in Pierce was, uh, we were always a powerhouse in the state. We were usually ranked in the top three um, in our division. So football was kind of an easy thing for me to get into. I was always interested in it. Um, ironically, kicking was not my first love in football. My first love in football was defensive tackle in seventh and eighth grade, because at that time I was the largest person in my class and I was quick and fast. I chewed the gap and sacked the quarterback, um, a ton. So that, that was my favorite position was actually defensive tackle, but I played a lot of soccer growing up, um, hence the kicking and, um, never really knew why when I'd play other other when we play other teams, why their kickers couldn't kick the ball as far or as high or as accurate as I could. I, I just, I don't know. I guess it was a natural gift. Um, in soccer, I was always known as having the leg. You know, I'd go across midfield, and if the if the keeper was out, I'd shoot it over his head into the goal. So um, I just always had a lot of power and realized I was good at it and just kind of got into it. All right, so uh, so let's see, soccer and football. Uh, were there any other sports as well that you played? Oh yes, I mean, considering this is a, a basketball podcast, I did play basketball um, for a number of years. 
up until my junior year of high school, actually. And the reason why that ended was um, the coach at the time wasn't happy that I had to miss a, a Saturday shoot around practice because I was going to play um, on the Nebraska Olympic Development Program soccer team that weekend in Omaha, which was a state select team that they then select the junior Olympic team and stuff. So I thought missing a shoot around practice was okay, but apparently it wasn't. And he was upset. He wouldn't play me. And I was just like, I don't need the drama. Um, so I hung up my basketball um, gear and actually turned into drama at that time and decided I'm going to do the school of play because why not do another thing, which was fun. But I, so I did basketball. I did baseball for a number of years, although it wasn't a high school sanctioned sport. It was just kind of our small towns team, as well as a year of wrestling. Um, I did cross country and I did a track and field all through junior high and high school and even considered doing that um, in college. But I decided there's no way I could do football and track at the University of Nebraska while studying chemical engineering at that time. Um, just a little bit overwhelming. So I, I just stuck with football. Okay, so I was uh, the running nerd at uh, my high school, actually. So what uh, what track events did you do? So I, ironically, so I started in long distance, um, hence cross country. But I had a bad back from like grade sixth grade. And it just got progressively worse to the point of I had to wear a, a back brace for a little over a year um, in junior high. And that kind of pushed me out of long distance. I know it's always very fast with sprints, so I kind of switched to sprints. Um, so I did like the 100, 200, 4 by one um, but I was uh, really good at jumping. I've always had um, some, some jumpers on me. So I focused on a little bit on uh, triple jump, long jump, but mainly high jump. And as high school progressed, I started to push away from the running and just focus on jumping to the point of I only did high jump my last two years of high school. Um, and that's what I was considering doing in college. Okay. Yeah, I, um, I, I did briefly try, uh, I think this is the first time I'll have disclosed this on SB Nation, but I actually was a walk-on um, and undergrad myself for about a week and a half. Nice. Um, but between the time commitment for that and uh, I had um, a, a rib problem, um, and long distance running was not particularly great when oh, no. it's a piercing stab when you try and breathe after a while. So I, I was like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm done. But, uh, yeah, so, um, the fun connection there. Uh, yeah. So, uh, that brings us to kind of the, the meat of what, uh, we're looking to talk about here is you happen to have a unique perspective on your time at Nebraska and when you went there to play football, which is you were the first out football player at Nebraska. So um, can you kind of get into telling us about that? I guess let's start with the recruiting process for that because you, okay, you so, came out in high school, right? Yeah. So I'll give you a little background about, I guess, my high school experience before jumping right into Nebraska. So like uh, I came out my junior year of high school um, in small town, um, Pierce, Nebraska, to a very loving mother, but also very homophobic father, at least at the time. Um, we've since become very close and he's one of my biggest supporters now. Um, so that's amazing because not many people have that, that story or that experience of the transition. But honestly, in that story, which we can get into later, um, sports is what I think helped 
helped that for him, helped open up his heart and his eyes, um, was seeing my love and acceptance in the end um, of my story at Nebraska uh, by being an openly gay um, athlete and just being my authentic self. So I came out my junior year of high school. Um, sports was always kind of my solace. Uh, it didn't really matter, you know, if you're what any identities you carried, if you could play, you could play. And I was, I was talented at, at sports. I was a really good athlete. So I just kind of focused on sports um, as well as academics, of course, because um, that was very, very important to me. And ultimately what got me a big scholarship to the University of Nebraska was um, my academic side. Um, but getting recruited, I mean, I, like I said, I came out my junior year of high school, so everyone in the town knew. Um, coaches would come in from Nebraska to watch games, to meet at my house. I know they had to have been hearing about, you know, my sexuality at the time um, because it was the talk of Northeast Nebraska. I mean, if you grow up in Nebraska, you know that we have no professional sports. So if you play Nebraska football, you are kind of deemed a celebrity, even if you're just being recruited. So people already knew a lot of my business before I was even on the team or even signed. So that junior year, I know coaches knew, um, but as friends and um, other people I've talked to have said that they always say that, well, the coaches must have known that you were too good to pass up, you know, regardless of your sexuality. And I'm like, okay. I mean, again, this is 2003. This is before marriage equality. This is a few years after Matthew Shepard's brutally murdered in the neighboring state of Wyoming. Um, literal federal protections for LGBTQ. So it's like a completely different time than fast forward 17 years to where we are today, um, which we still have a long ways to go. But um, so I kind of went into Nebraska my freshman year, just thinking like, well, I'm already out. I'm not ashamed of who I am. I don't think my sexuality should be anything to be judged, um, to judge me on. Um, people should judge me on my character and my values. And so I was like, if someone asked me if I'm gay, I'm going to be honest and I'm going to, you know, say yes. But the first several months, no one really asked me, but there was the stipulation or the speculations and stuff. And there was a lot of homophobic stuff that I endured from teammates. I had a handful of homophobic team teammates that, you know, made it known that it doesn't matter um, how good I am. Like, we're going to make fun of you. We're going to... You know, haze you, we're going to physically threaten you and a few times physically assault me, um, which made it very difficult because I'm just trying to be there, be the best athlete I can be, but at the same time dealing with homophobia from some teammates as well as a few coaches. Um, but I just said, you know, I'm just going to be myself. I'm going to work hard. And through that, I'm going to prove to them that, you know, I am like everyone else. I'm an athlete first and foremost. And my identity of my sexuality, yeah, I'm proud of that, but that isn't just who I am and it's not something to judge me by. And um, through that experience and kind of approaching it that way and being unapologetically me, I think that's why, as we get into my story a little bit deeper, why it transitioned from all that an immense struggle at the beginning to ultimately love and acceptance is because I was just myself and I was always vulnerable and through my, um, me being vulnerable, other people were allowed to see that and open up their hearts and minds and realize that, oh, you're just another person and 
um, love and accept me for who I am. Yeah, uh, and thank you for for kind of that that intro. I know um, there's a really interesting story, and we'll have it in the uh, the, the posting on the website, obviously, for anybody who's interested in taking a look at your uh, talk with fellow SB Nation site Outsports. Um, but there's one player in particular I know that uh, stood out in your struggles with uh, being kind of the out the out player, and two guys in particular that really helped you with um, kind of being accepted by the team. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, those three guys? Yeah. So um, during my recruiting process, I made friends with two athletes, two um, Husker football or soon to be Husker football players like myself, who ironically are from, were from Naperville. So a suburb of Chicago, which is where I'm at now. So kind of full circle there. Um, they, just befriended befriended me on recruiting trips. And I don't know if it's because they were from a much larger, you know, city or area that they were more open-minded already in 2003, but they loved and accepted me for who I was, no matter what, from the beginning. And so those two people, Corey McEwen and Sean Hill, um, were very loved and accepted widely by the team. They were pretty, pretty much the, the jokers of the team. So everyone loved to like sit around and laugh with them. And I think because they accepted me so much, that helped um, my teammates open up and accept me a little bit quicker. And so we kind of, one day we were sitting at, at lunch and it was probably three months into my career there. Uh, Corey and Sean just kind of looked at me and said, uh, hey, pretty boy. Um, and pretty boy was my nickname that they gave me and it stuck throughout college. And people outside of the athletics department called me. It was it was interesting to say the least, but um, they're like, hey, pretty boy, we have a question. And I immediately knew what that question was. And I'm like, well, here we go. And Corey's just like, are you gay? And I go, yeah, is that a problem? He's like, no, nope, we thought so. We just wanted to check. And I was like, well, that was the easiest coming out experience of my life. I wish that's how they all, all, all were. But um, so from there, we just went about our day and went um, to practice. But because of their big personalities and their uh, mouths, um, that news spread very quickly. And um, soon the entire department and state and Midwest and I mean, Facebook had just come out um, around that time. And I always had on there interested in men. And that kind of opened up people from all over the country to reach out and some hate, but much more love and acceptance um, from just being my true self. But then the third guy you were mentioning, uh, which I refer to as John always when I, I speak, because I, I want to keep him anonymous um, just because I don't want any backlash on him. He was kind of the leader of the homophobic group and um, always like threatened me physically, um, said a lot of homophobic slurs and made it really, really difficult to, you know, go to practice every day, not knowing if this huge beast of a human, cause I, I was like, you know, I was a kicker. Yeah, I was 195 pounds and 6'3 and muscular. He was 280 probably, tall, big, you know, huge um, person. So having someone like that threaten your life and your physical safety every day was very hard. And I even had a physical altercation with him at one point, which if they, you know, read my firsthand account of all this, um, which I wrote throughout sports, granted, I did not title it. So that's the one thing I don't really care for it. 
um, in that piece is the title because it sounds like a children's fable, but um, it, it's it's a good it's a good story to to kind of read and show the overall transformation of people who can be extremely homophobic and from very conservative parts of the country, how they can open their hearts and minds to those who are different than them just by having experience in meeting someone who is different than them. And so ultimately, yeah, um, John became one of my biggest friends and supporters. And that story is kind of, it's a really beautiful story from where it kind of started in so much pain and struggle and fear and anger um, to ultimately having my back, um, which transformed my, my athletic career at Nebraska and kind of opened, I think, some doors to my acceptance on the team, but uh, not just by my teammates, but by more of the coaches. Um, yeah, there was still um, one coach in particular who uh, was homophobic throughout my entire process, which I'm sure really hurt my, my playing time um, and stuff. But I mean, at the end of the day, I always look at, you know, what are the positives and negatives and do the positives outweigh the negatives? And I think it's very clear, especially with the work that I do now with um, my organization, LGBT Sports Safe and Diversity and Inclusion Consulting, and really trying to change the world of sports to be a safe place for everyone, um, no matter what identities they carry. It's clear to me that everything I went through, um, all the positives far outweigh the negatives. Um, even though I never got my shot, um, even, you know, and never really saw the field, it doesn't matter because I did something much bigger just by being myself. Um, and I never could have imagined that one person could create that much change at that time. That was kind of my eye-opening moment to know one person can change the world um, because I was firsthand kind of experiencing that. And it's kind of been a, a beautiful and rocky and all over the, um, all over the, I guess, the, the journey's been wild and crazy since then, but I wouldn't trade any of it for the world. And uh, so does Crown Royal still have a, a, any special meaning for you after the, the birthday party where John uh, kind of opened up about his uh, transformation? I mean, that's funny you brought up Crown Royal. <laughs> but, I mean, it kind of does. If, whenever I see a bottle, it kind of puts a smile on my face because it takes me back to that moment. And I mean, I apologize if I get uh, a little emotional here, but you know, I'm not one to shy away from showing my emotion. I don't think um, anyone should shy away from that. So um, yeah, it's, it was a very touching moment. So every time I do see Crown Royal, I get a little, a little misty probably and a little sentimental, but I ironically don't really drink that. <laughs> I'm into bourbon now. <laughs> More than fair, yeah. Uh, my um, one of my sister-in-laws is from Kentucky, so I uh, certainly don't object to to bourbon consumption, um, you know, with her background. But uh, so let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the coaches as well. So you were there from 2003 to 2005 on the team that is. Um, so you were there right at the end of the Frank Solich era, and then the start of the Bill Callahan era. So what, um, what, what kind of experience did you have working with the coaches? Obviously, uh, some of them were a little bit iffy, so to speak, on, on the, the openly gay part. But um, overall, it was a pretty positive experience for you, right? Yeah, I mean, especially with head coaches. Head coaches-wise, Frank and Bill, um, they were 
always very inclusive and um, always kind of a champion of who I was, I think. Uh, Frank, as if you may know from just, you know, watching him do interviews and stuff and his personality, he's a lot, I think, he's a little bit quieter than, than Coach Callahan. Um, so that's kind of how he was with me. He wasn't always as uh, talkative, I guess, but he was always very nice and very supportive. Coach Callahan, he and I had a great relationship. Um, and I, it's, it's interesting because I haven't really talked to him since my, my time there. And I've always kind of wondered what it would be like, you know, however many years it is now later, um, 15 years, wow, it's really aging us here. Um, but 15 years later to maybe have a conversation with him again and just see what his viewpoint was or what he thought you know, back then about my experience and maybe some of the things he heard from his end. And it, it doesn't have to be a public conversation. I would love it to be a, a private, heartfelt conversation. But no, he was always a very big supporter of me. And I, I really liked him as a coach, uh, Coach Callahan, because he cared about his athletes and his players. Um, and you saw that every single day, not only on the field or at practice, but you saw that in just one-on-one -on -one conversations um, to the point where like the end of my time there when like my career ended with a spinal fusion back surgery, because like, as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, I had always kind of struggled with back problems. Um, and then through my time as an openly gay athlete, I had to prove myself worth so much more than my fellow teammates um, that I was overworking out and I was pushing my body way beyond its limits to the point of where I had two stress fractures in my lower spine and they got so severe that um, both both pedicles on one of my vertebra were completely severed and there was no stability on one of my vertebra and so it was hitting my spinal cord and after the Alamo Bowl um, in 2005 I was basically um, in a state of paralysis uh, after one of our conditioning sessions uh, on the turf and realized I had to get it fixed. And so um, bringing this back to Coach Callahan is when I went in and shared that news with him of like my career's over before it ever really could have even begun um, was really hard for me because I'm sitting there talking through tears. And at that moment, I saw him shedding a tear. And that right there meant so much to me because I, I knew he, his heart was was really in, in it and that he cared for me more than just an athlete and that it didn't matter really what my sexuality was, that I was human, I was one of his, his players and he cared about me more than just as an athlete. And so that, that was a really beautiful moment which I cherish to this day. Um, so I, I would love to have another conversation with him someday about all of that. Certainly. And uh, certainly if anybody with the athletic department um, happens to by chance listen to the, the podcast and have the contact information, let's um, see if we make that happen. Uh, but so um, let's uh, actually let, let's share, um, go back to a different Alamo Bowl. Uh, I think you mentioned one that I would prefer not to be named, uh, which I, I we were both actually at coincidentally, um, not that we knew each other then, uh, obviously, but the 2003 Alamo Bowl, I believe. So uh, Bo Pelini was the interim head coach. Uh, you guys happened to pretty soundly defeat a certain team. Now, let's just not rub it in by mentioning who it was. Uh, State. But, 
Okay, yeah, I had to go there. Um, so yeah, I mean, you, um, you you had a pretty great celebration after the game, right? This is pre-John fully being on board, though. Yes. If I remember the time. Yeah, this is kind of one of the experiences that I look at as when he started to change for the better. Um, and like, like you said, we got back to the hotel, everything was a big celebration. And I was on my way to one of the many parties that all the athletes were going to attend. And as I was walking down the hall, um, in this a big hotel, there's John at the other end of the hall with some of his buddies walking towards me, apparently going to the same party. And I was just thinking at the time, like, you know, I don't want to deal with that. Uh, you know, this hatred or homophobia right now. And um, he yells at a, yells out a homophobic slur. But at that time, one of his friends put his arm on him, like kind of on his shoulder and just said, not today. And he just kind of quieted down and listened and like fell in order. And that to me was kind of the turning point of like, he's seeing his own friends kind of shutting him up and telling him, hey, you know, he he's more than his sexuality, like give him a chance, like open your heart up a little bit. And I think that's when he started to. So uh, the 2003 Alamo Bowl is special to me in that regard, because I think it kind of started the transition up from struggle or immense struggle, I should say, because there was still struggle even towards the end of my career there, but um, from immense struggle to ultimately much more love and acceptance. And uh, definitely a better night than I had that night. But <laughs> um, we'll uh, we'll we'll take a moment as I uh, get over the the pain of that memory myself, and we'll take a break. And when we come back, we'll pause on the football talk to take a look at uh, your experience with Nebraska as the overall athletic department. So back in a moment. And we're back again. Uh, thanks for sticking with us. Let's. Um, Nebraska happens to be a school that uh, folks like to say has a fairly close-knit athletic department, not just within football, but among all the different sports. And you've kind of worked with other universities across the country. Um, is that something that you think kind of holds true, or um, is that maybe uh, not necessarily is true? I mean, it, how, how was it when you were there? Interacting um, with the other sports. I mean, I would say it's it's a fairly accurate assumption of what it's like in the Nebraska Athletics Department. Um, in my experience with athletic departments around the country, I feel it holds true. Um, I don't know. I think what they do outside of just like coaches, um, I think the administrators and the support staff at Nebraska is just top notch. I mean, you have people like Keith Zimmer. Um, and Dennis LeBlanc in there who have been there collectively for years and decades. Um, and to this day, whenever I'm back in Nebraska, I go and go in and visit with them um, because they were instrumental also, I think, in being supportive of, uh, supportive of me. And um, so I think through people like that, them um, and just kind of the way that the complex is set up, the athletes are relatively close there. There's a few sports that I feel kind of are a little bit, you know, more to themselves. But generally, overall, I think the athletes from different sports uh, interact a lot more than what I've seen at other other universities. And it's a very nice, um, 
nice close knit group. And uh, do you happen to have any fond memories of games at the Bob Devaney Center at the time? Since technically this is a basketball podcast, so <laughs> um, at that time, not really, because <laughs> sadly, uh, most of the the games Nebraska lost. <laughs> um, but I've had, I mean, some some good experiences there still. But I, I really enjoyed. Um, I mean, outside of, I guess, Nebraska basketball, I really enjoyed Nebraska volleyball. <laughs> so we can, I can speak to that from my, my playing days because I actually had um, some roommates of mine in college were Nebraska volleyball players, um, Michelle Lynch and Melissa Elmer. So I went to a lot of their games. But basketball, um, sadly, it's just we weren't the, the most winning team at the time. And though I supported them, um, every game I saw, they lost. So... I don't know if there's a really shining moment in any of that. Well, maybe maybe your attendance was the bad luck factor there. Hopefully. I, who knows? <laughs> I mean, they have improved since I've been there. So it's a fair assumption. I mean, they have PBA now, at least. Yeah, they, they've got PBA, at least. I mean, that, that's definitely an improvement. <laughs> uh, so uh, remind me of the timeline. It was right after you were on that they started the uh athletic table program or was that still going on there their um sort of communal center for all athlete meals oh no we already had that um when i was there it was in the hewitt center um yeah and i I don't know i i really like that because i think that's why you were you were seeing you know and interacting with other sports and other athletes a lot more and having the opportunity to kind of befriend people from, you know, just other areas of sports. Cause I've seen in like different universities around the country, a lot of the times the football team ironically has their own um, center where they eat. Um, so a lot of sports can be more segregated in other universities. It's not true and um, you know, all over the board, but I do think Nebraska is, is different in that regard. Okay. And um, so we'll, uh, uh, and that that reminds me of another uh, part, the uh, athlete prom, right? Did I get the name right? Yeah, it was like the, oh gosh, I think, I'm gonna have to really think on this the title, but it was it was for it was like for Valentine's Day. It wasn't necessarily called a prom. Um, I think it was just a, they called it a student athlete formal. I think was okay. their 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 title, and it was from my understanding, it was the first one they had ever done. Uh, so it was, it was unique in that sense and then unique in the sense of where I think you're going with this. Yep. Which is, you happen to have a date for that, correct? I sure did. Um, my ex Greg. Yeah. Um, who ironically then moved to, uh, DC for a, for a big stint. So I know you're in DC, so maybe you met him in passing at some point, but so yeah, Greg and I, um, I told him, I'm like, we're having a student athlete formal. And everyone's bringing a date, and I would really like you to go. He's like, oh, okay. Um, And I remember telling him, like, you know, this is going to be interesting because, you know, clearly there hasn't been any same-sex dates at any student-athlete function that I've ever seen or ever heard of. And I remember sitting there at the table um, with – I was with Corey and Sean and a couple of our volleyball friends – um, at this big round table up in the one of the skyboxes, 
uh, where the, the dance was, or formal, whatever you want to call it. And the first slow dance um, came on and I looked across the table and I kind of like grabbed Greg's hand and I was like, well, this is one big step for Nebraska athletics. Are you ready? He's like, sure. And we got up and um, we danced. And um, I remember some athletes, you know, hooting and hollering and some people whistling and clapping, but that was a, a beautiful moment because it showed that, you know, they didn't care you know, what my sexuality was and that they were supportive and just wanted me to be happy. So that was a, a really cool moment in my, my time at Nebraska. And I wore a crushed velvet, like, uh, I think it was like magenta jacket that I got from Abercrombie and Fitch back when that was popular. And, you know, it was around Valentine's Day. So everyone's wearing red and white. So I'm like, well, let's do it. Um, I think I still have that jacket somewhere hidden in the closet, so I'll have to break that out at some point. <laughs> that would uh, definitely be a sight to see, I feel like. If um, if you happen to find any pictures in your archives and feel like adding that to the, the podcast uh, oh, yeah, there are, I'm sure there are some scary ones, because at the time, I thought it was cool to dye my hair platinum blonde. So not only was I wearing a crushed velvet magenta jacket i had on uh like a white undershirt white undershirt button up and then like bright white hair um i mean it was cool at the time people thought it was great but looking back i'm like what did i do so you know we always have all have those choices and that we may regret or look back on and be like yeah i have a different opinion on that, on that hair right now but i mean that, that was a fad what last summer uh, was that the thing or was that it was a fad the summer before and so everybody was making jokes about it going into last know. summer? I don't even know, to be honest, but I have can tell you now, though, in quarantine, I've had several friends in Chicago do that. And I'm like, is everyone having a Britney Spears moment where they're either shaving their head or they're dying it a crazy color? So, I mean, whatever makes people happy and allows them to have some fun while they're in quarantine, I support um, you know, as long as it's safe. So, yep. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it is what it is, I guess. Exactly. Um, that. But, um, yeah, so uh, during your uh, time there, obviously, um, this also was during a big coaching change. And so uh, kind of pausing on, on that aspect of it and moving on to just kind of a general student-athlete perspective – what what is that like when you're a football player? You recruited by one regime, and the coaching staff is let go. Uh, what what's that like experiencing it from the athlete and and then what's it like adapting to a new head coaching staff coming in? Oh gosh, I mean, you're hitting the the nail on the head with all that because like I not only experienced like just a coaching change or a coaching regime change. I experienced a lot of that because even when I was recruited, um, I was recruited, you know, with Frank Solich, but then coach um, Young was the kicking coach and special teams coach. And the year that I was, you know, getting offers and everything, he's being let go or forced to retire. So I think they, they worded it. And so here's this guy who's recruiting me 
leaving, but then the new coaches coming in are bringing in their recruits that they've been recruiting, but yet they still want you, like myself, to be there. So that was an interesting time because different athletes that I had been on recruiting trips with at Nebraska were all worried we're getting offers pulled or what's going to happen. I mean, for anyone who reads more about my story, it shows that I was an invited walk-on because like I told them, I don't need the scholarship, give it to someone else since I was, I had academic scholarships and, and stuff. So, I mean, don't waste it on, on me when we can get another defensive lineman or something. But then also I think what hurt maybe their chances of, or ideas of giving me that scholarship um, offer was coaches are bringing in their own schol- you know, athletes that they, um, like the new coaching regime was bringing in their own athletes. So that was interesting right there. And then getting started um, with new coaches under, Frank Solich that hadn't been recruiting me, but they had their recruits there as well now, was interesting because you could see favoritism um, amongst some of the new coaches with some of the athletes that they brought in, uh, which was kind of hard to deal with because you're sitting there trying to prove yourself, but someone's already biased because, you know, they've already built this relationship. Um, And then going from there to, you know, like, uh, Coach Callahan coming in and bringing an entire new staff pretty much uh, was hard because not only did we go from the old ways of Nebraska football, I know uh, not only the walk-on you know program changing and basically being cut down to almost nothing. I don't want to say eliminated because it wasn't, but it was cut down drastically um, to a comp- like West Coast offense. That was that was difficult because your playbook completely changes and um all of a sudden it becomes more like school than sports because you're relearning a ton of different things which is fine and it's challenging in some ways so that's a good thing but it was hard as an athlete um i think all of us across the board it was hard to kind of find a congruent um i don't know like I don't know what the right words are for it, but some sort of congruence between the group uh, and the team to kind of fully buy in because you had some athletes from the Solich era, some athletes now from the Callahan era, and people were recruited for different purposes. And people who were recruited for purposes in Solich are being forced into other positions or into different roles or being told they have to do something different. And it, there was just a lot of I don't, I don't, like tension. That's that's a good word for that. There was a lot of tension there, and um, I think that's why if you look at the just kind of the stats, or at least on win losses for the time, uh, why they turned out to be the way they are, or way they were, I should say. Um, because I, I will always say this: like with Coach Callahan and the, and the team that we had and the roster, we had the team that could win a national title with the athletes we had and the abilities we had and what I would see at practice some days, we were unstoppable. But did that translate into our, how we played on the field? Not very often because we'd have one person wanting to showboat or do something. And you know, it takes all 11 men on the field doing what they're supposed to do to execute a play correctly. And it just kind of, it would fall apart sometimes during games and it was really disheartening and hard to see Um, when you knew you had a championship team at practice. So I think a lot of that had to do with um, going through all that coaching transition 
and all the tension um, and incongruence amongst the team um, at that time. I guess, uh, so looking more at, um, because obviously there's 11 guys, there's two different sides of the ball, there's all the different um, positions and whatnot. What, uh, what, what was it like getting to know a different position coach almost just about every season that you were, were with them? What, um, what, what are some things that uh, you know, each one might do that you thought was, looking back on it, maybe kind of helpful of um, a- any given role, maybe, uh, if that question makes sense? Yeah, I mean, somebody coming into a new position, what, what, what was some lessons that maybe you learned from them? Um, I don't know. I guess a lesson that I learned through all the coaching changes was to try and be more like a chameleon and be more malleable uh, to the different styles of coaching and different, I guess, objectives of what that coach wants you to do. So I just kind of like once like coach Downing was there and then coach Bush, like our kickoffs, I remember changed drastically in how we would practice them. Like we were doing a lot more, or at least we were practicing a lot more, these special types of kicks. Like we were not always going for best hang time and distance. Um, We were going for like different types of kicking, like kicking it like a bullet down the center, you know, making it bounce. We're doing different types of onside kicks different types of punting and different, like everything was, it was just, it just changed a lot. Um, So I guess I learned to be more open to the change in that time. Um, I want to mention like coach Downing, he was and uh, always a big supporter of mine. And I really valued him as a coach. He was, he was, he was similar to Callahan in the sense of very personable. Um, He was just a nice guy. Yeah. He, he, could be direct with his coaching at times because I think every coach needs to be that way. But in the end, he always had heart and he always cared about his players. So I really enjoyed him as a special teams coach. Um, I'm not going to really speak on some of the other coaching just because of some of my experiences with some of the other coaches, but coach Downing was, was great. Um, And I do want to, I always have to say this when I'm on a podcast or doing an interview, I know I was there when Coach Brown was there um, at some point in my career, and he gets a lot of backlash for um, a lot of his conservative beliefs or religious beliefs and things he said uh, that are not inclusive and very anti-LGBTQ. Um, I do always say that he never once to my face said anything negative. He never once showed any sort of animosity or ill will towards me. He was always very nice to me, to my face. I don't know what that translated to behind doors when they're having coaches meetings and when they're looking at who's playing and whatnot. I mean, at the end of the day, I didn't get playing time um, for a, and who knows what all those reasons are. I would often have um, my teammates, parents or my teammates too come up to me and be like, when are they going to allow you to, to kick? Um, because we see you practice. We, we see what you're capable of, but why aren't, why aren't you out there? And I just always would be like, I don't know, you know, we'll see. And I just try to stay positive, but it was hard. It was hard constantly wondering, will I ever get the chance to prove myself um, just because of my sexuality? So I do think, yeah, there was a lot of um, 
I guess, homophobia on some level um, kind of hindering that. But I also heard stories that, you know, boosters were talking to the program and saying, you know, we should pull support if you play or we'll pull support if you play, play him. And I heard lots of things. I even had a radio station devoted to Nebraska athletics or Husker athletics specifically have an hour long conversation about is Nebraska ready for an openly gay football player? Not mentioning my name, but the conversation was not good. And there was a lot of um, calls coming in that were highly homophobic. So this time period, you know, 17 years ago was so different than now that I'm sure a lot of that factored into what ultimately happened with my career. But, you know, I'm not sitting here telling, sharing any of this to um, be like a, oh, why me, why me? Because that's not who I am. And I look at it as all this is a positive um, because it's, it shaped me into who I am and it's given me the story and experience and a platform to now help others in a way that I otherwise wouldn't be able to um, with my work through LGBT Sports Safe um, and diversity and inclusion work. So um, all of it was necessary. And, you know, everyone has their own journey to love and acceptance of all sorts of people and all walks of life and all types of identities. So if, the, if it took me in 2003 to 2005 at Nebraska to change the hearts and minds of countless people in the state and around the country and potentially world, um, then that's what it took. And I'm okay with that. And that's fine. Um, is it a little hard to see some of your uh, friends or uh, other athletes that you knew at the time that you were at the same caliber of, if not a better um, going on and pursuing other things athletically? Yeah, it can be at times, but I mean, at the end of the day, like put down your pride and realize you're doing something much bigger and you're helping the world in, a, in, a, in my personal opinion, in a better way um, than what sports um, can really do. But the beauty in sports is that it unites everyone. It doesn't matter what uh, walk of life you're from or what your identities are. If you're there and you all have that common um, team that you root for, that that brings you together so sports has a unique ability to unite people and that's why i love working in sports now um especially in the diversity and inclusion side because i can really tap into that and uh going along with that theme a little bit i know um obviously back in the 0305 era with nebraska it was a lot different um in terms of coverage i know before you've mentioned uh reporters generally were obviously aware that you were an out gay player. Um, how how rewarding is it nowadays seeing uh, some of the athletes that have come along in more recent years, like um, obviously at the pro level, Robbie Rogers, Jason Collins, but even at the college level with uh, players like Scott France at Kansas State and the type of coverage that they get too? Um, I mean, it, it's so different than what it was. Uh, it's changed in a lot of ways for the better there's still so much to, to go on. Um, I pr really pray for the day when we're no longer covering it as, oh, the gay athlete, you know, because ultimately I think that's why a lot of these LGBTQ identifying um, athletes are staying in the closet is because they don't want that to be the, their sole identifier um, to the world because they are in sports because they love sports and love to compete. They want to be known as an athlete first and foremost. And yeah, they may be proud of um, their sexual identity or gender identity, uh, sexual orientation or gender identity, but they don't want that to be 
in the headlines always. So I think that's what's kind of holding people back. So it has been nice, I think, especially with Scott Franz, seeing his uh, acceptance. I mean, I know now with his story and you know him trying to go um, professionally, and he has since announced, I think in the last couple of days, maybe even been just yesterday, that he is going to hang up his cleats and and stuff and kind of shift gears. Um, I know a lot of that is kind of due to where we are with COVID-19 and the NFL is looking to bring on more um, seasoned players that they've had and they're not taking as many rookies this year. But I do think had um, this pandemic not happened, he would definitely be at some of these, you know, these camps and stuff and having a shot. I not, that's not to say that his sexuality isn't being factored in. I don't know, but I'm honestly think on some level it is in some places, but I do think we've come to a place in sport where it is accepted more. Um, I think professional sports has a long way to go, um, especially college sports is a whole different ball game. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with not only what sport you're in, but also what part of the country you're in as well as division wise, um, large to small. So there's, there's a lot of work to be done, um, which is why I'm doing the work I'm doing. <laughs> and uh, keeping uh, with the theme of change a little bit, but uh, switching topics a tad, it's been uh, 10 year, almost 10 years now since Nebraska moved from the Big 12. So let's um, take a second to talk a little bit about uh, what were some of your favorite memories from your time playing football in the Big 12? Was there a favorite opponent, favorite road trip, uh, anything you kind of missed from those days in particular? Um, I mean, I always kind of explain being on like a college football team as it's kind of like a frat in some ways. You know, you're a close-knit group of of uh, individuals that be end up becoming friends and kind of brothers in a sense. And I miss the camaraderie. I miss kind of the, the laughing together. I mean, I kind of turned into like, I, I kind of say the big gay comedian on the team in some ways, because they always would ask me questions. And I always tell them, you know, don't ask me anything you don't want to know. Cause I'm going to give you an honest answer. And they loved it. They loved the brutal honesty. So we'd sit there and we just talk about things. We talk about girls and guys and just life and um, everything. They'd ask me if I would help them with their chemistry homework. And oftentimes I'm like, I don't have time to do my own homework. So no, I can't, but I miss that kind of brotherhood that we had and the, the fun times. Um, honestly, one of my favorite memories was the 2005 Alamo Bowl, which I know you don't really want to talk about. Um, no, no, no. Mine, mine was the 03. Okay. Well, yeah, 05, I, 05, I believe you guys beat yeah. that other school. I'm more than happy about that okay. one. That that one's great. I, I love I when like, that team loses. You didn't want to discuss, so I was I'm treading lightly on that, but it's good to know 2005 is fair game. But no, 2005 was great. Um, I don't know. I uh, For Christmas, I bought myself, um, with the help of my parents, a gift. And it was like a little camcorder thing, but it was like mini DVDs. And so I, ironically, in the last five years, have found these little mini DVDs and watched them. And it kind of brought back all those memories of what I think of, of the 2005 Alamo Bowl. Of, you know, we're there for a week, um, you know, practicing and stuff. So I see interactions with some of my teammates um, and, and friends. And um, 
there's a funny like experience in there with Indomitian Sue, who, you know, is now playing professionally. And he was like, I think it was a freshman at the time. So it was just like, we're kind of reliving the, the fun moments with the team as we're traveling. Um, and bowl games are always kind of a highlight, I think, of any football experience, just because of the fanfare around it and celebrations and you're, it's just, it's a much bigger experience than going away for just a game. Um, and they give you bull game gifts. So who doesn't like that? <laughs> uh, anything in particular stand out out of the, the gift package from the Alamo Bowl? Um, we got, I think it was an Xbox 360 at that time. Microsoft and MasterCard, I think, were the sponsors. And um, I think every player got an Xbox 360. I think that's the gaming console. I mean, it's been so long. Um, but me at the time, like that, since that had just come out, people were selling that and like making a ton of money. And I'm like, all my friends on the team are gonna have it. So do I need this? I'm like, no, I'm gonna use it to pay off a credit card. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know if that's legal. So don't tell <laughs> NCAA, hopefully they can't come back and get me in trouble on that but as well um, past sanctions now so it's a, a 15 years all later. clear all clear <laughs> but no that was nice um yeah and you always love like oh you're getting more swag more husker gear and bull game stuff is usually maybe a step up um but yeah i honestly i have one last husker gear thing from that time period that i still use and it is from the 2005 alamo bowl it's um, a red fleece, like zip up. The pants have since died. Like, they, and honestly, if you would see the state of the condition that the, the jacket is in, you'd probably say it should be retired as well. But it's, I don't know, it's the one thing that I still hold on to and I wear it a lot. Like it's one of my go-to things to wear to the gym. Um, I usually just bike over to the gym. I mean pre-COVID. <laughs> now it's like I walk into my living room and take out a band and hope to find some motivation. But um, yeah, so that's one of the things I still kind of cherish and, and hold on to. Um, my parents have some of my old shorts, though. And I know my dad still rocks them out, um, especially in the summertime when he's either refing soccer or softball or out mowing the lawn. So they still live to this day. Well, uh, Patrick and Nate, the other co-hosts of the podcast, aren't here to make fun of me for my Michigan bashing. So um, this reminds me of a memory I had a few years ago. There was some Michigan fan uh, who was obviously a 2005 opponent. He had a 2007 Michigan football student section T-shirt, which has the schedule on the back. And he wore it publicly, like even to the gym. And it's like, I, of course, I'm going to walk over to you and make fun of you for the Appalachian State loss to start the season. Aww. Like, come on. You're a Michigan fan. I'm a state fan. I'm going to have to do that. It's it's like I would spontaneously combust as a Michigan State fan if I didn't give a Michigan fan opening the door for that, the opportunity to razz them for it. So, Oh, trust me. <laughs> I, I get it. Um... Uh, I dated someone here in Chicago for a number of years who went to Michigan State. And also being in Chicago and being so much closer to where Michigan and Michigan State are, um, I've realized the rivalry is big. And so I totally understand why your your need to go kind of, you know, tease him for his, his Appalachian State loss. 
But well, you know, uh, I think, um, was it 2015 when we played Michigan State at home? And I know you hate the call that happened, um, but that that we won um, at the end of the game. Oh, oh, you're gonna pull the picture into this? Nice. <laughs> yeah, that was. Uh, it probably doesn't come across on the the camera. Yeah, We're at. Yeah. Um, so that was uh, my actually uh, fun background on this that I'll I'll share with you. I. Don't know if the podcast listeners have heard it before, so I apologize. But um, Nebraska has a really weird um, spot, I guess, in in my own personal uh, college sports fandom. They are the first bowl game and really first road game that I ever went to for Michigan State football. And they're the first Big Ten road game I ever did for Michigan State. Um, So when I went to the 2003 Alamo Bowl – yeah, that, that was my first time um, going to a uh, Michigan State game or any college football game, not in Spartan Stadium. And then I turn around and my husband and I met in 2013 when MSU played at Nebraska and had their first of only two victories ever. And I was weirdly at an LSU game um, with a friend of mine here in D.C. at the time, uh, at, at LSU, obviously, the friend was also from D.C. at the time, has since moved. But I was like, yeah, this is really fun seeing another stadium. Hey, we play at Nebraska in like a month and a half. Let's let's go. And so I ended up um, right after the game. I, I got uh, our flights and game tickets and whatnot. And I went to the game at Nebraska. So the, it's uh, a fun coincidence since then for me. But, yeah, so we were at the game in 2015 with – one of my two brothers, the one who actually graduated from Michigan State. Um, I, so, yeah. But, yeah. Well, I mean, it was actually, that game is a cool experience for me. Um, I mean, it was 2014, is February of 2014 is when I was kind of thrown into the world of diversity and inclusion in sports. And then that kind of year time period or year and a half until uh, the game that we're talking about, Michigan State versus Nebraska in 2015 at, at Nebraska. Um, I kind of really built a career in diversity and inclusion in sports, and I've been doing some work with Husker Athletics, and they actually invited me back um, for that game. And they're like, we'll give you sideline passes. Um, you can bring, you know, your parents and a guest and, you know, blah, blah, blah. You can have lunch and all this sort of stuff. And it was, it was a really cool experience to go back and um, be championed as not just a Nebraska football player, but on a whole different level of being someone as who is championing diversity and inclusion in sports and as an educator of Husker athletics um, on diversity and inclusion in sports. So that was really cool to see that. But um, I remember like I told my, I took, I took my, my partner at the time who I had already mentioned uh, went to Michigan state. And so whenever, you know, someone says Michigan state, I'm, I'm used to saying the go green and all that because of him, but I took him to this game. Uh, like we, we drove back to Nebraska, brought my parents. And I told, I told my ex, I said, this may be the worst game I could ever take you to because Nebraska's had a really bad season so far. And it's the atmosphere might not be what it normally is like for Nebraska football. And I don't want that to jade your, you know, your experience or whatnot. And I'm like, Michigan State is, weren't they undefeated? I'm just like, they're one of the best teams in the country. They're going to, they may annihilate us. So fans might leave early. Let's just, you know, just don't think too heavily on this is your first Nebraska football experience. And I remember as the game went on, 
uh, like second half, I pretty much di- dished my my partner and my parents in the stands um, just to stand with the team on the sidelines and was there until the end of the game. And I completely lost my voice because of like the screaming and the excitement. Um, and it ended up being the best game I could have ever taken him to. And he, he agreed afterwards, even though he was upset Michigan State lost. But um, I was like, wow. Um, and then uh, I remember what, what it was that Dennis LeBlanc was talking to me afterwards. He's like, I think it was good luck that we brought you back for this. I was like, maybe, I don't know. I'm like, if you want, I'll come back to all of them. <laughs> I, I'm going to blame uh, my family, actually, because when I went in 2013, well, so all all six of us, my three siblings and my parents all went to the 2003 Alamo Bowl. We lost. I went by myself with my then boyfriend, um, but, you know, no family members in 2013. We won. <laughs> uh, let's separate 2014 in East Lansing, completely different scenario. Uh, but then 2015, one of my brothers comes with me and we lose. And then 2018 in Lincoln again, my parents actually flew out up. The, um, they have since moved to Florida since then. Uh, but so they flew up from Florida and went to the game in a blizzard. <laughs> And which I still do not hear the end of. And we proceeded to lose. So I I blame it's my family's fault. Uh, They are no longer allowed to go to a game that Michigan State plays against Nebraska unless it's in East Lansing. That's Uh, that's it. No, no more going on the road with me to games there. Um, But yeah, I, I, hey, to be fair, I spent like we, we flew out on Friday from DC for that. Um, I spent all of Friday and all of Saturday tailgating for the night game, telling all the Nebraska fans that I would come across who would be like, oh, you guys are going to kill us. Like, you're really good. You know, we're really bad. I'm like, you guys are way better than your record at this point. Like, we may very well lose. You know, like I was there at Rutgers earlier that season where we ended up um, and we had a lot of injury problems, to be fair, for why we struggled a little bit in some of these ones, particularly against Rutgers. Um, but I mean, like we won there because they spiked the ball on fourth down, forgetting that it was fourth down instead of third down, yeah. turned it over and we ran the clock out. Like we, we had some squeakers where we really had no business losing or winning as little as we did. And you guys were a much better team and we played like garbage and deserved to lose the game, <laughs> but he was not forced out. He was not forced <laughs> out. He was ineligible. Mistakes happen, you know, oh, well. <laughs> Oh, well, exciting uh, <laughs> game, regardless of the call. And as I've always said, and what I really learned from college athletics was that like, and in some ways it's kind of taken some of my passion out of being a spectator is that stuff happens. And if you're a true championship team, you have to overcome any sort of call um, or any sort of whatever officiating or injury or whatnot, you have to find a way. And so that's what I kind of realized in my, my athletic career there, um, which is kind of weird because now I'll watch a game and I'll be like, hey, something bad will happen and friends may be yelling at the TV and I'm just calm, like sitting there. And I'm like, in some ways I feel like it killed some of my passion, but, or maybe it's just reshaped that passion to a much more calmer sense because I know stuff happens and we just got to deal with it. And I don't, I don't think often like a lot of fans realize that of like the mentality of an athlete um, is no matter what happens, you have to come out the next play and forget the crap that happened before. 
and you just got to do your best. So um, I don't think often people who maybe didn't play sports or grow up playing in a team sport get that sense when they're watching it and they see something bad happen and they just want to like yell at the player or wring the, the ref's neck or something. But I definitely learned that lesson through my college career. More than fair, though, spoken by the winning team in that situation. But, <laughs> um, but no, so that, uh, t- to back up a little bit um, to kind of the, the next line of questioning that I was going to have earlier. Um, so Nebraska moved from the Big 12, obviously, back in uh, your playing days, to the Big 10. And uh, we talked a little bit about when they were in the Big 12. What do you think overall of the move to the Big 10? Was it the right choice for Nebraska? Was it not? I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but I mean, just you know, from the perspective of somebody who uh, was there back in the Big 12 days and now, uh, you know, flip it to the Big 10 move, obviously. Was that, was that a huge surprise to you? Good move, bad move? I mean, initially there was a little bit of like, oh, a little bit of shock or surprise, but then I kind of thought about it and like, it does make sense to me more because of money and um, visibility, because I think in the big 10, you get more of that. And ultimately, sadly, a lot of times in sports, that's a driving factor um, is visibility um, and money. So I thought, okay, I can see why. Um, So that wasn't, wasn't too big of a shock. It was kind of weird for me, though, since growing up in Nebraska and always being like, and then playing in in the Big 12, it was weird no longer saying Big 12 and then having to get on board with Big 10. And then all of a sudden we're playing teams like on the East Coast. I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. But I've since gotten used to it. I still, like if we're playing Rutgers or Maryland, I'm like, this is odd. It just doesn't seem natural to me because it wasn't my experience. I mean, it. everybody in the Big Ten feels weird playing Rutgers and Maryland. No offense to Rutgers and Maryland, but it's just, <laughs> they're just, there's no, there's no cultural fit. It's like they're the, yeah. I, I like to refer to them as the in-laws that you get along with fine at family gatherings, but like you have nothing in common with. And so you all just kind of show up to the big family reunion and, Kind of give a head nod, you know, how are you doing? <laughs> yeah, you like and work? Well, okay, cheers. Have, have a good rest of your time here. Like, that that's what it feels like with Maryland and Rutgers. I'm, I'm sorry to, none of them will be listening to this, I'm sure. So I I don't feel all that bad bashing them <laughs> a little bit. But, um, yeah, I mean, uh, have you um, have you gone to many road games in, in the Big Ten? Do you try to go to, say, Northwestern, obviously, uh, when Nebraska plays the- there? Yeah, I try to get to the Northwestern games, um, not only just to see Nebraska, but I work closely with uh, Northwestern's athletics department as well. So uh, I am there a couple times a year anyway. So I like to kind of kill two birds with one stone and see both Nebraska and Northwestern because uh, they both share like a special place in my heart for completely different reasons. Like Nebraska, clearly, that's where I played football. That's where I had all these experiences. But um, Northwestern, well, I guess Northwestern and Nebraska, along with University of Oregon, were all three um, our founding partners in the LGBT Sports Safe Inclusion Program. So those were those three powerhouse institutions that made a commitment to inclusion in sport um, early on. And they're huge, instrumental and influential uh, in- institutions. So, um, but then Northwestern, like the work I've continued to do with them through the, my organization and, and stuff, 
still keeps a special place in my heart. I'm every year I was kind of saddened due to COVID. Um, we usually have a student athlete and um, coaches and administrators and staff kickball game um, sponsored by uh, not only Northwestern athletics department and some student uh, athlete run organizations, but also my organization as well. And we go up there and have like an evening of kickball and I always play. I usually play on the student athletes team, um, which is fun. And then we talk about inclusion, we have food. It's, it's a great thing, but because of the pandemic, you know, all that stuff is shifted, but no, I try and go to Nebraska Northwestern games. I haven't made many road games since my playing time. Um, honestly, after my career ending um, due to a spinal fusion and then really not having the opportunity due to a lot of things, including my, uh, my sexuality um, while I played there, it was really hard for me for a number of years to even watch sports, um, not just football, anything, or even read about them. I spent a good five years where I was like, I can't even look. I couldn't, I, I moved out of, um, like after my spinal fusion, I moved, moved out of my housing with my, the volleyball players because I couldn't be around sports anymore. It was so hard for me knowing that the doctors were saying, you're never gonna play sports again. Um, and having to be around it so much. So it took a number of years. It took until probably I was first year of grad school. So probably about five years after um, my, my playing time that I was like, oh, I can start watching sports again. And ironically, it was because of dating someone who was from Michigan and his love of Michigan sports. Uh, so we kind of he kind of eased me into it i think and then from there i would go to kirkwoods in chicago as the nebraska bar and i since went and met um sean hill was there with his uh, wife one time and ben eisenhart who were both friends and teammates of mine at the time and we watched a game there at one point so i still try and watch um i would say my my sports life has changed so much from focusing on who's playing and what stats are to, you know, how inclusive is the athletics department? What are they doing to show up for their student athletes and all walks of life and identities? It's shifted more. So I don't watch as many games, um, but I am still heavily involved in sports just in a different way now. So did he drag you to any games at Spartan stadiums or the Breslin center? By no, chance? He, he couldn't no? get me there. Uh, <laughs> I let him go. Failure. more. <laughs> Well, maybe that's why he's my ex. <laughs> no, just kidding. I mean, I, we still get along very well. We're, we're very close friends. So just wasn't meant to be. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, although definitely a failure to not drag you to campus. Um, I've, uh, I've made sure that my husband has been to football, basketball, and even a hockey game actually there. Oh, nice. um, but uh, it's, well, We'll, we'll let that lie on, on his Spartan fandom uh, <laughs> being questionable. Um, so what's, uh, what, what would you say are some of the differences um, now that you might see between being a football player in the 0305 era to uh, today in 2019-2020, uh, disregarding obviously COVID-19 um, currently? Uh, are there much in the way of differences? Is it pretty much the same I mean, I think allegation-wise, it's very similar. I mean, I remember my time as an athlete and all the um, 
just like meetings we had to go through compliance wise and, you know, on sexual harassment and all these other areas. Um, I think that's pretty much the same. However, it's shifted more uh, into other areas of inclusion and things to focus on. I think, you know, as always, rules and regulations change and evolve and morph. Uh, so there's still a lot of that. So I think like obligation wise for in that sense is very similar, but the topics have changed, um, changed for the better, I think, uh, because we're talking about a much wider array of uh, topics and issues and challenges that people may face in their career. But then I think obligation wise, when it comes to playing, uh, working out is very similar. It's just health and nutrition wise. I think things have changed. I workout wise, it's become more, I think, even more functional workouts versus just constant strength and throwing up the, the heavy weights, you know, and plates in the weight room to rolling tires and ropes and different types of things. Granted, we still did some of those types of things back when I played, but I think health and nutrition wise, it's, it's been changed, but that's just because science is, has grown and evolved and we've learned more about that. So I think all the changes are the same are, are necessary and they're good changes, but the, the amount of time, I mean, being an athlete in college is more than a full-time job, um, which gets me into a whole nother topics of, uh, paying athletes and other sorts of stuff. Because like, if I think of even myself, like my career ended with a spinal fusion, I, to this day have massive back problems and have since developed a neuromuscular disorder, which most people don't know when they look at me, um, is that I'm in chronic pain. And so some of that can definitely be related to killing my body in college athletics. So, you know, there's arguments both ways on both sides and, uh, of should athletes be paid and not, but I just think it, the more people hear different stories and, about anything, whether it's paying an athlete or someone's sexuality or gender identity or their race, religion, whatnot, the more they open up their hearts and minds to those differences, create empathy and kind of allow themselves to humanize others in a way that otherwise they wouldn't. So um, it's always good to, I'm a big proponent in sharing your story. So I thank you for allowing me to share some of my story on this podcast, because hopefully it allows others to, you know, kind of have the courage to do the same. I think a lot of people feel they don't have a story or their story isn't as special or meaningful, but I guarantee everyone's story will have an impact on someone. And if you're changing one person's heart and mind or inspiring someone in some way, it's totally worth it to share it. And you'll realize, I think through that, that we have way more commonalities than differences, which is ultimately what we need right now in this world more than ever, because we're so divided. Very well said. Um, and on that note as well, um, what are some of the things that you think uh, have been vastly improved since your time in terms of LGBTQ inclusion in athletic departments? And what are some of the things generically, uh, and if you could talk about specifically at Nebraska, and um, what are some of the things generically across the board uh, schools should be doing to try and improve uh, the experience for LGBTQ athletes, or even just try to encourage people to feel welcome in being an athlete as an LGBTQ person? Okay, I will try my best to answer all those in this. But if I forget one of those questions, please reiterate it. Um, but I think like one, the times have changed so much. 
back in 2003, when I first started my career at Nebraska, we didn't talk about LGBTQ athletes or acknowledge their exist existence in sports. So that alone is so much different now, like visibility wise. And I think largely due to things like media and um, just changes in society, young athletes are more accepting of their, their identities, sexual orientation and gender identity, and they're sharing those with the world. So we're having to have those conversations. Back in 2003 at Nebraska, they, the athletics department was very reactionary um, because they'd never had an openly gay athlete and they didn't know how to respond. Did they respond in the best way? Not always, no. But it's understandable why they didn't because there was nothing set in place. You know, there was nothing proactive. There was no programming, no education uh, on the topic. So the biggest stride that I've seen nationwide is not only just the visibility is drastically increased. Um, and because of that visibility, we've been forced to have these conversations because we're realizing that um, more and more like getting into science of athletic performance and stuff, we're realizing that um, someone's, you know, mental state and psychology and all this has a big, um, big play in how they're going to perform. Uh, so, and when you're talking high level sports, that tiny fraction of play of, you know, whether they're going to be a, a split second faster or jump an inch higher is going to make a huge difference. So I think now they're realizing we need to have these conversations. And so one of the biggest strides I've seen is that a lot of athletics departments now are being proactive and they are actively searching for ways to be more inclusive, um, not only with LGBTQ individuals, but all walks of life. I mean, race, religion, ability, you name it, we're, we're starting to have these conversations. And so if we're talking specifically about Nebraska, um, like I said, when I was there, it was reactionary. But then once I kind of got thrown into this world of DNI and sports in 2014, um, they started to reach out and we started to have conversations that I never in my wildest dreams would have thought Nebraska would, would get to at that time, just because of my experience and just knowing Nebraska is a very conservative state and we're in the middle of America. Um, but it's been so beautiful seeing where Nebraska was and where they are now to, you know, being a part of their first ever uh, diversity and inclusion symposium that they had. Um, a number of years ago, and they've been doing that now annually since then. Um, that was amazing, being like one of the keynotes at, at that, where I spoke to all the student athletes and all the coaches, administrators, and staff on two separate um, events. Like it, it was, it's just incredible. And knowing that they are now championing, championing um, diversity and inclusion on campus, and they're making it a priority. It's not just that they're proactive; they're like prioritizing it. And now with Dewan Baker in there as, you know, head of the diversity and stuff for the athletics department, he's doing a number of wonderful things. And I, I love that he's there and getting to work with him and, um, you know, uh, Dennis LeBlanc and, and some others there. It's just it's just been amazing. They've had they've had LGBTQ inclusion inclusion programming for the coaches, administrators and staff on, you know, how to learn the necessary tools and resources to to be supportive of everyone, no matter, regardless of their identity. And it, that's been a big thing. So across the board, Nebraska has changed for the better. And so many athletics departments have, there's still a lot of work to be done around the country. I think moving forward, um, more athletics departments need to, to reach out and 
figure out a way to be to have some sort of social competency around inclusion and especially around lgbtq inclusion and race and ability and gender like all those areas we need to start covering that more um and if anyone's listening to this podcast that is a coach administrator staff member at an uh, institution that is interested in you know having conversations or getting the ball rolling don't hesitate to reach out to me um you can reach me at eric at lgbtsportsafe.com or eric lucian um, on all the different social media apps send me a message because i know a lot of times some athletics departments hesitate to reach out because they have that fear of well we haven't done anything and we're just kind of we don't know what to do so they don't act because they're just they have that that, that fear that they're behind you know everyone starts from somewhere and the important thing is that you're trying and you know one of my favorite quotes is, you know, have patience with those who are trying. And if you're trying, I'm going to walk hand in hand with you and we're going to learn together. I'm sure you're going to learn things from me about diversity and inclusion in sports. And I'm going to learn things about you and your experience and how to be a better person and um, better role model in my work in everyday life. So I think there's a, a lot of things that athletics departments can do. Um, big thing is education. Also, policy enactment, uh, making sure that they have uh, protections written in place in their non-discrimination policy explicitly for sexual orientation and gender identity, which um, Nebraska has, uh, Northwestern, and a number of institutions all over the country now do that. And that is actually one of the qualifiers that we have, like the baseline qualifier for joining LGBT Sports Safe is that you have a non-discrimination policy that includes um, sexual orientation and gender identity. But if you don't, like that doesn't mean we're not going to work with you. It just means we're going to work with you to get that policy enacted and then get you into a membership. And then we're going to help you focus on inclusive programming, um, public awareness initiatives, and other sorts of inclusive policies. Certainly a, a good improvement to hear about, especially for somebody like myself. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think um, unless you have any closing thoughts, I think that's probably a pretty great conversation for the the pod this week so um certainly thank you for coming on if you ever feel like uh joining to talk about basketball later on uh <laughs> you know i mean coach hoiberg certainly um has some excitement going for the basketball program so you know yeah. um, once in a while we we obviously talk about football even though it's a nebraska podcast so uh any any time in the future always welcome so thanks again for joining yeah. us for this week that was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thanks for giving me the opportunity to share my voice and experience with the world. And uh, for all of our listeners, as always, uh, thank you. We hope that you uh, follow the podcast and subscribe to Coordination Radio. Uh, you get not only a Bang Rangs and Daggers, you get John's Post Life Crisis, Five Heart Podcast, uh, our new short podcast reaction episodes that we started doing. Um, certainly rate or review the podcast. We appreciate the feedback. And as always, uh, definitely comment in the, in the feed on coordination.com. Thank you, and have a great week, everyone.